Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia, and we are The Thought Hackers. With us today is a woman by the name of Bronwyn Shortino. She's an author, a simplicity expert, and professional speaker who spent almost two decades as a high-powered executive before experiencing a life-changing event that forced her to stop and ask the question, what if there's a better way to live? Answering this question took her on a journey of discovery that gave her the knowledge and wisdom to write, keep it super simple, tips from a recovering perfectionist, and to step away from a traditional life. Bronwyn is passionate about showing people that there is a different way of living. Bronwyn believes in the positive impact that communities can have globally and that the best is yet to come. She is living proof that aligning your life with your value system is critical to to decreasing stress, building resilience, and embracing change. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Bronwyn. Thanks, Nathan. It's great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, it should be interesting. I mean, looking over what you sent back to us, I just went, oh, wow. Mm. So the so that life-changing event, can you give us an overview of what happened? Sure. I uh, was uh, spent almost two decades as a high-powered high award-winning executive, and um, then I was diagnosed with uh, skin cancer. And it had been misdiagnosed for eight years. So for eight years, I'd been told that I had psoriasis, which is a skin condition, um, on my left temple. And uh, then within 10 seconds, it was, that's not psoriasis, it's actually skin cancer, and you're going to need uh, plastic surgery to fix it. Um, and for most people, that would be enough to pull them up short. But for me, I was just annoyed um, because it was something else that I had to fit into my day. Uh, it was something else that I had to cram into an already overpacked schedule. Um, and uh, I just didn't know where I was going to fit it in because um, in my mind uh, at that point, um, something like um, surgery for myself was uh, insig insignificant um, and it meant that it would, in, in, it would interfere with uh, my ability to uh, over-deliver to everyone around me. Um, so I gave myself half a day to have six centimetres of my head cut out uh, and uh, I had my surgery in the morning and that afternoon I was back home with a bandage stapled to my head, uh, back on my laptop working um, and running around looking after everybody else again. And then four days later I went back to the surgeon and they took all the staples, you know, pulled them out one by one um, out of my head and uh, I saw the wound for the first time. Uh, and it was like having a quarter of my head missing um, when I first saw my reflection. Uh, and the shock of seeing that just triggered a complete breakdown. So I went from fully functioning to on the floor, unable to function in everyday life and unable to stop crying. And I had no idea why. Um, and that triggered a journey for me of uh, self-discovery. Um, and I spent the next two years working with um, clinical psychologists, grievance counsellors, um, and I also explored energy medicine as well. 
Um, and the combination of those things opened up the most incredible world to me and the most incredible set of knowledge that um, enabled me to write my book, um, which was part of my recovery, um, but also to really understand and, and start to get to the crux of how we make ourselves up to, up as individuals uh, and the way that we live our lives now and, and where that's forcing us to in terms of um, traumatic events in our lives um, and the way that, you know, it makes it really difficult for us to live on a day-to-day basis. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow is an understatement now. When you when you talked about, the, like, how much – how much of your head did they remove? Like, did they remove part of your skull or what, what did they remove? Yeah. So uh, essentially they cut from my left temple right down to my skull. Um, and it was six centimeters round and one centimeter deep. Wow. So into the bone itself as well. Well, they didn't actually have to take any of the bone. Um, but it, it, uh, essentially went right down to the skull. Um, and, uh, but when you actually see that for the first time, it's, it looks like, you know, the initial reaction to that is that a quarter of your head's missing. Um, it, it actually, it wasn't, but when you first see it that way, um, that's, you know, how, how I received it from a, you know, visual perspective. Can't imagine that. Yeah. And I, I just find it puzzling that they didn't like did they use any ointment or or anything else or or were you just seeing literally the bone of your skull well i had a skin graft on it so um i didn't see the bone because the skin graft was over the top of it um but it it was essentially a crater that that was looking back at me in the mirror and you know, when you when you see a wound, you know, straight after surgery, it's very red, it's very raw, it's very, you know, um, you know, new, and um, it's something that, you know, when it's on your arm or your leg, you sort of look at it and just go, wow, that's, you know, that's a that's a wound. When it's on your head, you're looking at it, going, oh my god, that's going to be like that for the rest of my life. I'm going to be walking around. Everyone's going to be staring at me. Um, all of those sorts of things, because of course when it's on your head or your hair's shaved, all of those sorts of things. So it is very exposed for everybody to see. Um, so uh, the shock of it was significant. Um, and, you know, that that literally triggered me and, and flipped me, if you like, into a completely different um, reality. Mm, I can imagine it would. Listening to what you were saying with when you were told that you had the skin cancer and you didn't know where to fit it into your life and it was just an insignificant thing, whereas most people would sort of readjust themselves in their life in a way that they had to mainly, I suppose, prioritise and focus on that. Was it for you, just sort of listening to what it, the way you described it was, it, was it a bit of a denial or was it because you were this perfectionist and everything was so structured that it just didn't fit in? Yeah, um, it, it look, probably deep down it, it was... Um, it was denial, um, but more from the point of view of um, uh, what that would mean in terms of my ability to deliver to everybody around me mm. um, because, uh, you know, I had this uh, – I had literally perfected um, this outward facade of, um, you know, calm and success and strength and all of that sort of stuff and and – to have something like this in your life suddenly challenges 
the facade that you've actually put out there for everyone else to see. Um, and um, essentially, uh, you know, I, it was just really the, the thing that dropped me so that I could actually have a look at what I was doing and, and how I was doing it. Mm. Um, because my greatest strength is my strength, but also my greatest weakness is my strength. Because yes. um, I don't have warning signs along the way that tell me that I've done too much or I've gone too far. Um, and I have this incredible ability to just power through everything. Um, so for me, it really was an opportunity to stop and reconnect with who I was and understand that I'd completely lost sight of who I was. You know, I was living my life for everybody else, doing everything for everybody else, and I actually didn't factor in my life at all. Um, you know, so it was the most incredible thing to have happened to me because it has so significantly changed the way that I look at things. Um, it's changed my ability to see things from such a larger perspective um, and almost be able to walk in the shoes and in different aspects and look at things from different directions. Um, but, you know, perhaps the biggest thing that I've learned from it all is that I didn't need to have the traumatic event to learn those things. Every single thing that I have in my life now was available to me beforehand. I was just too stubborn to see it. So the, the illness, that particular thing, one could call it a huge wake-up call. Massive wake-up call. Um, you know, and, and um, you know, I, one of the things I've learnt through this journey is that as a society we have this belief that we have to have a traumatic event before we're allowed to change. Um, you know, because we're so scared of change now and we've been taught to fear change on such a deep level that we actually fear change more than we fear death. And it's not until we have these traumatic events that death suddenly seems a bit closer and we start thinking, well, we'd probably better have a look at that. So now it's okay to change. But I also noticed around me that people started to say to me things like, oh, it's okay for you because you've had cancer. It's okay for you because you've had a breakdown. Um, and people absolutely believe that it's fine for you to do these things now because you have to live differently because you've had this traumatic event. But they don't have permission themselves because they haven't got there yet and they haven't had that thing that's nearly brought them to death. Um, and it's such a, you know, a, a furphy. You know, it's, there's just no truth in it. But we've, But somehow we've accepted this belief and grabbed it with both hands and run with it. Um, and yet it's killing us. Um, you know, so it's it's something that I find really interesting now and it's something that every time I work with people, it's you know, I want to talk to them about it. I want them to understand that change is really easy. We've just been taught that it's not. Well, when you've been operating out of a particular system for so long and you've gotten used to it, you built a structure around it and you just do that every day, you get to a point where you're like on automatic pilot, for lack of a better description. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I talk about in my book is, uh, you know, about the autopilot and the way that we actually don't live our own lives because we're on autopilot. You know, we've been trained through social conditioning and um, and just through the comfort zone that we sit in that, you know, there's, there's ways to do things and we don't even think about it, we just do it. Um, and we don't stop to consider what the impact on ourselves is while we're doing it. Um, you know, and uh, it, it really is easy to do it differently. We just have to learn to ask ourselves a few questions that allow us 
um, some time and space between whatever's coming at us and what our response is, and then that automatically cuts that autopilot out of the equation. Yeah, you have to wake up and by whatever means. And like you said, the the shock of seeing the the results of the surgery was that the actual worst moment of what you were dealing with, or was there something else along the line that was even more significant that way? I think that the the moment of seeing the wound is probably the thing that that sticks most clearly in my mind. Um, but you know that it certainly wasn't the hardest part of the recovery. The hardest part was, you know, absolutely learning to um, look myself in the, look at myself in the mirror again because I just didn't know who was looking back at me anymore. I had no no connection whatsoever with the reflection that was coming back at me in the mirror. And something that I notice now a lot is, um, you know, wherever there is a mirror, people won't look in it. Um, you know, if you're in a lift, for example, or an elevator, um, and there's mirrors around the sides of it, people will do everything that they can not to look at themselves in the mirror. Um, I was at a shopping centre on the weekend and um, near a, uh, like a, a, a repairs place or, a, you know, the places where you go if you need to get your um, pants taken up. Um, and there was a girl there who was standing in the most beautiful ball gown. She'd bought this ball gown and she needed to get it uh, shortened. Um, she's standing in front of the mirror so that they can actually make sure that the length of the dress is perfect all the way around. And she couldn't look at herself in the mirror. Now, this girl was stunning. Um, she had the most beautiful ball gown on and she could not look at herself in the mirror. And it just reminded me that we don't know who we are anymore, so we don't want to see the reflection that's coming back at us. And it's almost like if we just don't look at it, it'll go away. Um, well, there's... There is an aspect to this uh, that I recognize because uh, when you go through a traumatic event, a life-changing event, and you wind up looking into the mirror, something I've experienced personally, you, you don't recognize the person looking back at you. you. There's something that's happened to you on a fundamental level. I don't really know what it is, but you don't actually recognize the face anymore. There's something that's different. Would you agree? Um, yeah, actually, I think um, my take on that is a little bit different in that um, I actually don't think that we're looking at ourselves in the mirror beforehand and that tra the traumatic event almost forces us into a space where we have nothing else to do but look at ourselves so that we can heal. Yeah, that um, makes sense so too. All of a sudden, when you're looking in the mirror, you're actually looking. And you're trying to find yourself and reconnect with it yourself. And I, I think it's that after the traumatic event where you realize that you don't know who you're looking at the mirror anymore. I don't think before the traumatic event that we realize that we've lost sight of ourselves and that we're actually not looking in the mirror. Um, even when you do your hair, you're not looking in your eyes in the mirror. You're just looking at your hair. Um, you know, so... It's, it's really interesting how we are so disconnected from ourselves and we have no idea that we're disconnected from ourselves. That makes total sense. And what I'm wondering about is once you did have that realization, how long did it take you to get used to looking at yourself in the mirror and were you able to finally reconnect or is there still some of that missing? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it, you know, that uh, it took me two years to be able to really uh, feel that I could uh, step back out into my life. Um, and another 12 months on top of that for me to know that I could stand on my two feet every day, no matter what was going on around me. Um, and through that process of the first two years, that's when I was really piecing myself back together. Um, and essentially, I, you know, I sort of describe that as when I had my breakdown, it was like being shattered into a million pieces on the floor all around me. And I had to learn which pieces to pick back up and which pieces to let go. Um, and so, you know, that, that two-year process was really about picking up pieces and working out, you know, really looking at them and saying, do I need this or do I thank it for its contribution and just, you know, set it aside and say I don't need that moving forward. Um, you know, so, um, you know, I, I feel like I really know who I am now. Um, I know what my values are. I know what's important in my life and I know what's important to support me every single day. So I know the things that I need to make sure that I'm going to be okay and to set my day up so that I'm fully energized, I'm connected with what I'm doing and that, you know, um, what I'm doing really um, feeds my soul as well as, um, you know, making an impact in the world. So in this process of putting yourself back together, as you say, um, what did you do? Uh, well, to start with, it was really uh, it was really about sitting in front of people that I didn't know. So that was, you know, counsellors and clinical psychologists and energy medicine um, healers and those types of people and just being asked really confronting um, uh, and overwhelming questions and just one by one working my way through those and, and trying to find my answers. Um, and I needed to do that because of the point that I'd gotten to. Um, you know, whereas if you don't, if you haven't had that traumatic event where you've completely broken into pieces, you don't need to go to that level necessarily because you don't have all those pieces around you that you have to learn to pick up again. Um, and then as part of that process, um, I wrote my book and, um, essentially what that process was, was it started off overcoming a fear because one of the things that I had never done in my life was write anything personal down anywhere so I'd never journaled I'd never you know written poems or any of that sort of stuff that I had you know didn't have to do through school um, because as a perfectionist I was terrified that if I wrote something down it was something that people could use against me as evidence I wasn't perfect so I was terrified of it um, and of course when when my um, psychologist and my counsellors learnt that, it became my homework. Um, and so I started um, journaling um, and it took me three weeks to put a word on a page um, because I was that scared of it. Mm. Um, and as uh, around about the same time um, in, in as I was doing this, you know, uh, homework of journaling, um, I started just putting my toe in the water to go back out and um, uh, spend some time socially with people um, because I literally just disappeared. Like I, I couldn't see anyone. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't really have anybody around me because I just couldn't tolerate anyone in my space. Um, and so I needed to learn to reintegrate really in society um, and in 
a new form, almost in a very raw form of myself. Um, and so I just put my toe in the water to start doing some of this, um, you know, socialising stuff. And so everyone was really curious as to where I'd been and what I was doing. And I saw I was talking about journaling and they started asking me what I was writing about. And when I was telling them some of the things I was writing about, they started saying, you have to write a book, people need this. Um, and, of course, then that became the next overwhelming um, project to focus on, but it gave me something to focus on. And so as part of that process, I started writing down the big the big issues that had really impacted my life. So things like being busy, um, change, um, comfort zones, those sorts of things. And then um, the things that I had done to be able to help me to overcome that as part of my recovery. Um, so essentially uh, what I do on a day-to-day basis is I just have these little questions that I ask myself um, and that help me to see things differently, but also to work out what my answer to things is. Because I think we live in this environment at the moment where, you know, it's all about following everybody else. And when we follow everyone else, we don't necessarily do the things that are right for us. Um, And I think the biggest biggest example of that at the moment is um, if you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, they all say, I want to be a professional blogger. Um, because they see it as this cool thing where you get to sit at home, write on your computer, do half an hour's work a day and then make millions. Um, But they don't necessarily stop to think if that's right for them. It's just that it's high impact, high visual and immediate success. But that might not be what's right for them. They might not like to sit at a computer. They might be better off outside doing something or those sorts of things. So these these sets of questions that I use, really it's about getting back to the core of what's right for you and finding your own answers. So what are these questions? Can you give us an example? Uh, one of the biggest questions that I learnt to ask during my recovery, for example, is what if they're wrong? Um, and I heard that when I was listening to Greg Braden, who's an international best-selling author. I heard him being interviewed and he asked the question, And he was talking about it from the concept of um, when we're socially conditioned, we're told what's right, what's wrong, what's appropriate, what's not. Um, And then he asked the question, but what if that's wrong? Um, What if what what we've been given as this is how you shall live is not right for us? Um, So I ask that question all the time now. And and if somebody says to me, you have to do this, um, you know, like you go on a holidays, you have to go to this place, you've got to go to this restaurant, you have to do this, you have to do that. I always just say, well, what if that's not right for me? And I get the answer straight away. I don't really want to do that or that's not really me. I'd rather go for a hike than go to a restaurant just to say that I've been to the most famous restaurant in wherever. Um, you know, so that's not to say that somebody else going to the most famous restaurant in wherever is right for them, but, it, you know, it's not right for me. And I get to that answer simply by asking that question, what if they're wrong? Yeah, and there's another aspect to that question too, is when somebody comes into your space and says, you must do this, it's also a form of a a boundary violation. They don't actually know what's right for you. It may be right for them, but not for you. And when they project this outwards onto you, it's like, oh, you must do this. And you're going, ah, I don't think so. This isn't right for me. For you, sure. Go for it. Bronwyn, I I just want to tap on one of the questions that uh, 
I'm looking at, which was, a, I imagine, a very powerful question to you, where when you sort of got to that place of, of the change and you hit that rock bottom, you got that the, the trauma really hit, where a lot of people get to and they can easily get stuck in, in that place and not see anything outside of it. But you got to that question where you, it sounds like you sort of, got to that place of acceptance and awareness of where you were at and then you were able to ask that question what if there is a better way to live now to take that forward thinking question to step you out of that place how powerful was that for you uh, it was massive because what it did was allow me to step outside the condition that we have that you have to be stressed and exhausted to be successful um, and you know uh, i was giving so much of myself to everybody else that I had nothing left to give and, and I still found a way to give more, um, you know, because, uh, you know, I had this belief that if you just keep going, if you just get through this little thing, you can get to that little thing and then the next thing, yes. um, if you just keep going, you'll get to where you want to go and it doesn't matter how tired you are and it doesn't matter how exhausted you are and it doesn't matter if you're sick, you just have to keep going. And if you think about all of the marketing that we have around us, you know, um, we are so bombarded with all these different messages and somehow they get confused uh, in our minds. So if you think about you're worth it, just do it, soldier on, all these types of messages that we have, they somehow get mixed up from the brand that they're attached to, but they become so real in our everyday lives. And we start to use these mantras that, if I just push through, I just get to that little mini break or I just get to that holiday, I'll be okay. Um, you know, but we get to our holiday and we collapse and we end up sick and we're sick for three quarters of the holiday and we just get ourselves right and then we throw ourselves back into the same environment that got us to that point in the first place. Um, and so for me, being able to see that there is – um, there's a life outside that and actually it's well within our reach. It doesn't cost a fortune. Just ask, just learn to ask yourself a couple of little questions and your life can be completely different. Mm. Um, you know, being able to see that and being able to um, to live that way now is just, uh, you know, such a revelation. And, um, you know, it's like I said to you before, it was all available to me before. I was just too blinded and stubborn to be able to see it. Not unlike many other people. Absolutely. How do you see now the place that you were in when when that bandage came off, when you went into that really deep place? Where do you how do you connect to that now? Uh, to me that's a step it was a step. It was a step that I had to take to learn all of these things. Mm -hmm. And I often wonder if I learnt them at the level that I learnt them so that I can do what I do now every day, which is teaching people there is there are so many other ways to live and we get to choose them ourselves. Um, you know, and so sometimes, you know, they say it takes one person to be the leader, takes one person to be the second follower, and then everybody else can follow on easily behind. And I just feel that, you know, I'm absolutely on my path now. I'm so connected with what I'm doing and um, it hits every single one of my values um, so easily. Uh, and, you know, I get to spend every day globally showing people that there are other ways to live and that you can choose your own yeah. um, and that it's easy to do it. Um, so, you know, because sometimes people say, oh, well, you had to, you had a traumatic event, so how come that means I can't have one? It's like because you don't need to. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think people think that, 
this is the out, the traumatic event is the out. But what they don't realize is the traumatic event is the most extreme version of change that you can actually experience. Um, it is the by, by far the hardest, most, um, you know, incredible thing that I've ever had to do in my life. Um, and, you know, I've done that, I think, so that others don't need to do it. Mm. Um, you know, it's so much easier to take one little step now than it is to go through what I went through. Uh, and if I can, if, if my work teaches just one person that, then, you know, I've saved one person from the pit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that makes my everyday worthwhile. Tell us about your book. Uh, my book is, uh, it's my journey. Um, it, it talks about all the things that I learned in, in different aspects um, that were really important uh, aspects that got me to where I was at um, and that really combined, uh, you know, went together to uh, drive me to the point where I needed a traumatic event just to be able to um, change my life. Um, and, uh, every single chapter has little, um, what I like to call kistems, which is a combination <laughs> of wisdom, um, and keep it super simple. Yep. Um, and they're at the end of every chapter and they're little, just little questions that you can learn to apply to your own life, um, uh, that help you see things really differently. And something that's really special to me about the book is the, the feedback that I get from around the world, from different people about the impact that it has in their lives. And, um, you know, I think probably one of the most special pieces of feedback that I've had is that um, the, the lady that wrote that read it loved it because it was one of the few books out there that doesn't tell you what you have to give up, change, do differently. It literally just gives you a framework that lets you work out your own life yourself. Um, and, and I really loved that piece of feedback because that's what I really wanted it to achieve in the world. Very good. So, so for people who want to learn more about your book, want to learn more about you, where would they go for that information? Yeah. So uh, the website is www.sheiklife. So s h e i q l i f e dot com, uh, or Facebook, uh, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Um, and Facebook and Instagram are both uh, under Sheiklife, and LinkedIn's Bronwyn Shortino. Um, so, I mean, all of those places and I love having conversations with people <laughs> about what's happening in their life and, and, uh, just being able to give them, uh, little tips and tricks to think differently. And, um, you know, so I, you know, you have those conversations regularly and, and, um, love hearing feedback about the book and love hearing about what's going on in people's lives. The biggest thing is to be able to take those, those, to be able to ask yourself those questions that are going to take you into that, that little step, that little step in that forward direction away from where you don't want to be. Uh, and if the book's got those sort of sorts of tips, like, like I said, there's so many books out there that uh, they tell you what to do, but they don't give you the, the real understanding of how to do it. But having that sort of stuff for people to start questioning themselves and the questions are hugely powerful. Yeah, we, we absolutely have to move to a point where we find the people that teach us to learn from ourselves. Mm. It's, it's tough to stop following. We follow blindly. It's a very common trait and uh, for many of us to our detriment. Yeah, but, you know, we have to remember that we've been taught to do that. Yes, um, so now this is it's true. Now challenge the status quo and learn to, you know, teach yourself to learn from yourself. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you for being on our show today, for taking the time to be with us to answer our questions. 
Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Hamish. It's been a great Pleasure. conversation. I've loved being on board. Uh, good to have you. So, um, one other thing. Um, is there anything that comes to mind that you would like to talk about that we haven't asked you with our questions? Uh, no, not really. Um, I, I just think it's time, you know, to reconnect with ourselves uh, and and seriously, just don't don't get caught up in the belief that we have to have that traumatic event to change. Uh, there's so many things that we can do really easily in tiny, small steps that you know change our life in such a significant way. Um, so you know, now's the time to do it. Don't wait until you have the traumatic event. You don't need to go there. Uh, it's so easy to learn from yourself. Yep. Agreed. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. You're welcome. It's been great. So anyway, for those of you who have been listening to us tonight, my name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia. We are the Thought Hackers. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to The Thought Hackers. Make sure you subscribe and get each new episode emailed straight to you so you don't miss a show. And have a look at our resources page where you will find programs, audios and books that will create change in your thoughts. <laughs>